Welcome to this episode of Impact Education's Payer Talk CE program. I'm Fred Goldstein, the president of Accountable Health LLC, a population health management consulting firm, and I'm joined today by Stephen Caluzzi, the manager of clinical pharmacy at Highmark Inc. Hi, Fred. It's great to be here. Yeah, fantastic to get you here. We have a lot to discuss today around eosinophilic esophagitis, including new and emerging clinical treatments, the impact on patients' quality of life, and opportunities for health plans to improve outcomes for patients. But first, I want to let our audience know this Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education and Impact Education LLC and is designated for 0.5 contact hour of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Inc. and Sanofi, and we'd like to thank them for their support. Steve, there have been considerable advances in recent years in the treatment options for patients living with eosinophilic esophagitis. Are there challenges payers have around benefit design strategies to support timely access to appropriate evidence-based treatments? Yeah, thanks, Fred. And, and I think this is an excellent question to start with. I think there are so many different barriers to care with this disease. Um, but I think it would be helpful to discuss, you know, the, the patient journey here a little bit, just to give some context to this answer. So in order to get patients adequate treatment early, that patient first needs to recognize that their symptoms aren't normal and they need to seek care for that. But the problem with EOE is that the symptoms are very vague, difficulty swallowing, food impaction, choking, uh, stomach pain. I mean, if you just Google search stomach pain, you're going to find a million possible different diagnoses. So it's really hard to think, you know, that a patient is going to recognize this as a primary problem and something that they need to seek treatment for. And so patients just assume that they need to work around all of these symptoms as well. And that's, you know, that's going to delay care as well. So once that patient identifies that there is something that can be done about this disease or something needs to be done about this disease, then they go to their provider and then the provider needs to recognize this condition. And this is often not a PCP diagnosed condition. Um, and, and so there's time for the patient to set up an appointment with a GI specialist, time to wait for that visit. And then there's testing that needs to be done to confirm that diagnosis. And that entire process can take a considerable amount of time. And statistics show that that's somewhere in the, the range of four to five years. And we're not even at the treatment portion just yet, right? And so once that patient receives that diagnosis, they may, may need to see um, multiple specialists to truly receive the most comprehensive care that they can. Uh, gastroenterology that we talked about already, a, a dietitian, uh, allergy specialists, immunologists, and, and all of this before they even get treatment potentially. So when they finally get to treatment, they may need some kind of medical foods. Uh, so formula might be required since these patients have difficulty swallowing. They're not necessarily able to you know, maintain a normal diet and adequate nutrition. So they may also need medications, but you know, really we only have one FDA approved drug right now and that's dupilumab. We do have some other therapies, uh, inhaled corticosteroids that are taken orally. Um, they're off label though and for that reason, they're going to be infrequently covered by payers for that reason. Proton pump inhibitors are, are also used, but they're infrequently covered by payers too because they're available over the counter. So it really leads to a challenging uphill battle for these patients right from the start. 
So to answer your original question, some of those barriers that the, the payers really have to be aware of is, number one, the lack of awareness of EOE, not just on the payer side, but also on the part of patients and prescribers. Uh, there's going to be a need for multiple specialists to provide that comprehensive care. And payers need to be willing to cover those tests, the visits, and everything that's associated with making that proper diagnosis. And then we run into those treatment issues that we talked about already, where we have limited options, but even though they are guideline supported and there's evidence to support their use, they're not FDA approved. And so payers run into that barrier sometime uh, when they, they are concerned about uh, covering off-label medications. And so again, that, that one FDA approved option that we have right now, dupilumab, it really has transformed EOE care, but it's not right for everyone. And that's something that payers are running into as well in terms of facing you know, the barriers of identifying appropriate patients for this specialty therapy. Mm -hmm. So this is really sort of a complex disease that maybe is not seen that often or considered as well by the providers, which then leads to issues around making sure people have appropriate knowledge about the disease, the, the uh, health plans maybe ought to be taking a look at this a little bit more than they are. And you also mentioned this idea of a team-based care model and obviously some unique benefit design needs for these patients. When you think about that, what strategies do you see being employed to support appropriate access to eosinophilic esophagitis treatments? Yeah, this is a, another really good question. And um, I, I think I need to respond more so in the, the, the way that says what needs to be done, less so what is currently being done, because it's a little bit tough to put our finger on what is being done for EOE right now, because truthfully, it's not a whole lot. EOE is not hitting the radar on, you know, for payers at this current moment, again, because it's uh, it has all the makings of a rare disease in that um, it, it only impacts somewhere in the range of one in every one to 2,000 people in the United States. And then even those patients don't always seek care, and those patients don't always receive timely care. So really, I think what we need to be doing is, is focusing on a number of different things. So payers need to be aware of this disease. As you said, more needs to be done in terms of uh, getting that education across to payers. But then we need to also support that comprehensive care by providing that coverage to different specialists. That, and, and I would say that the messaging that I've heard in speaking with different uh, specialists on this is that dietitians are, you know, some of the most important specialists that these patients can see. And for some reason, a lot of payers are just not covering them right now. So more needs to be done in, in that regard, for sure. Um, we need to reduce the barriers that patients have in order to receive medical foods like and formula. Um, you know, in, in my mind, I'm thinking about the idea that formula is is potentially life-sustaining for these patients who really can't live a normal life in our, our food-centric society. And so it's it's almost a no-brainer that this needs to be covered, but it's not universally covered. So that's definitely something that payers also need to um, get behind as well. We also need to work towards reducing barriers by not requiring invasive and costly tests like endoscopies for reauthorizations for drugs that are working for patients. Um, and my experience has primarily been with the pharmacy benefit. So, you know, I'm focusing on the drug coverage portion. What I've seen with this disorder in particular is that providers are not looking to use the most expensive option first. 
you know, these patients are, are really trying. This disease is really taking an impact on their lives before they're jumping to something like dupilumab. But because of that stigma of off-label use with inhaled corticosteroids being swallowed orally to coat the throat or, you know, the, the PPIs, it's creating the situation in which patients aren't able to get drugs that are relatively inexpensive that could really make an impact on their care. I should also note that, you know, the evidence is promising for these medications and that guideline support is there, like I, I said earlier, but it's just a matter of the payers bending the rules to cover those off-label uses. When we look at dupilumab, um, what's being done currently is that, you know, uh, payers are recognizing that this is changing the landscape for EOE. And the prior authorization criteria that are in place for dupilumab are not overly restrictive. You know, they're looking for things like diagnosis to be accurate with the, the definitions that are used in the clinical trials, looking for the prescribers to have experience in identifying and treating this disorder, and um, also limiting use to appropriate patients based on that FDA labeling primarily. So um, there's, there's a lot of things that need to be done, uh, not so much things that are being done to date um, effectively, I would say. So what you're really talking about in a sense is fair access to some of these uh, treatments and products and obviously looking at appropriate timing for new coverage considerations, things like that, clinical eligibility criteria. And uh, these are some of the things that the health plan should be thinking about going forward. So given that, we recognize that all the stakeholders have a responsibility to ensure the effective new treatment options for patients with eosinophilic esophagitis and that they're introduced in a way that will help reduce health inequities. How do you see the payer's role in making a difference in health inequities for patients with this disease? Yeah, another great question. You're, you're, you're getting all the, the hard questions today, um, but, but that's okay. I, I think it's really important that we, we discuss the idea that, um, you know, health inequity is not just related to inequities caused by race or ethnicity, for instance, right? Um, not related necessarily to just the inequities uh, that we see in, you know, uh, patients who have the financial means to seek care versus those who don't. But instead, I think health inequity just refers to the, the more broad idea that no matter the reason, in, in some situations, there are going to be some patients that can get the care that they need and some patients who can't. And, and that creates that, that inequity that we're going to be talking about. So um, in EOE, I think it's, it's a really good example uh, of a disease state where, again, because of how specialized this disorder is, these patients need to access an entire care team, and, and that early diagnosis and early treatment is going to make such a difference in the patient's long-term outcomes and quality of life. But if you live in a rural area where the closest gastroenterologist could be tens or hundreds of miles away even, that could lead to some significant delays in the diagnosis and the treatment especially if other factors are at play, such as, you know, a lack of reliable transportation. So going back to the idea of the prior authorization criteria for a moment, um, I, I think it's important that, you know, payers are requiring specialists to prescribe these medications, but many of them are also looking to say that the prescription could be written in consultation with a specialist, and, and that helps with some of those inequities. Um, those, those policies are also looking at uh, requiring things like proton pump inhibitors that patients have to try before. But as I mentioned earlier, that's not always going to be covered because of the over-the-counter status. And so there, there's 
potential for some kind of inequity to be born there and that patients are going to be required to pay for a medication out of their own pocket potentially before they can get something covered by their insurer. And, and so those patients who potentially can't afford that OTC option may be in trouble. And we could, you know, exaggerate this a little bit more um, and, and, you know, look at uh, the, the inhaled corticosteroids, which are still quite expensive. And if we ask patients to pay for one of those out of their own pocket because it's not FDA approved or whatever the reason is, then that is, again, going to potentially create some sort of inequity for those patients before they can get a covered drug that is FDA approved. Um, and I think especially this goes for medical foods. And, and um, I, again, I, I can't harp on this enough that if for whatever reason the payer does not cover medical foods for the patient, there is a potential that that person just goes without food. And that's a, a very serious consideration. Um, you know, it's one thing if we're talking about a medication that can improve symptoms, but we're talking about, um, you know, formula that could be life-sustaining. And I think that's a really important take-home uh, from some of the conversations that I've been a part of. And interestingly, um, something that I've learned, uh, again, hearing from providers and patients directly, is that when payers require patients to try some kind of dietary modification in order to get, a, a, you know, dupilumab, for instance, payers tend to think of that as a free intervention, right? It's, it costs nothing to change your diet. You know, it costs nothing to, to cut out milk or cut out, you know, some other food group. But what was really interesting to hear is that this is not a free intervention because we're asking patients to cut out an, an EOE, some of the most common foods in our diet. So this is milk, wheat, soy, eggs, nuts, seafood. And, and what that's going to require then is specialized foods or specialty foods that the patient is going to have to purchase in place of those lower cost alternatives that everybody consumes. And so on top of that, we think about, you know, the, the patient in a vacuum, they are operating on their own. They are, you know, whatever dietary um, intervention that we're asking them to institute is only impacting them. But this disorder also impacts kids. And so families with those kids that have those special dietary needs, they're not, the, the, the family members are not necessarily going along with that same dietary change. And so any sort of dietary change that's being instituted or specialty food that needs to be purchased is going to be in addition to whatever the normal household budget for food is. And, and so that's a, a very interesting consideration that again, will lead into this idea of inequity. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating when you when we think about this from an inequity perspective and you look at some of the other chronic conditions that obviously are of a higher prevalence. So the plans tend to look at them like diabetes, et cetera, where you're really trying to reduce those costs to improve access to outcomes and improve the outcomes. And you're looking at ways that you can get people into the programs and things like that. We really need to look at this disease in a similar way and look at how it impacts the individual overall and the things that we could do from a benefits plan to try to improve that. So fascinating point. We also recognize now the the huge impact of things like health literacy and patients' ability to follow through with with recommendations, et cetera. What are your thoughts on that, Steve? Yeah, I think knowledge gaps definitely exist. Um, these are, you know, not necessarily the easiest medications to ad administer. If you look at it from the perspective of we're asking the patients to, um, you know, take a medication that is originally intended to be inhaled and instead 
put it into some kind of formulation that can then be swallowed. Uh, so it, it kind of goes against the way that the medication was initially designed for, you know, those inhaled corticosteroids. And, you know, even if we just look at adherence data for patients with inhaled corticosteroids when they're taken as instructed, it's still not great. And so if we ask them to kind of follow different instructions and all that, I think that'll definitely play into some of the adherence issues that we tend to see in EOE. Um, I, I think on top of that, though, if, if we think about, again, going back to this earlier idea that patients are not familiar with what sort of symptoms to look for uh, when they when they should seek care and so forth, they may also just put their blind trust into their primary care provider who may not know what to look for either. And I think that's a, a, a kind of an issue that we have when it comes to these these knowledge gaps. But I think very interestingly, Advocacy and, and patients being their own best advocate is, is so important in healthcare. But we noticed that there's a, a slight difference in terms of the amount of time that it takes for a child with EOE to be diagnosed. That's around four years versus an adult, which is around five years. And so I, I wonder if part of it might be related to this idea that adult caregivers with a child with EOE tend to be stronger advocates to helping their child receive appropriate care. They ask more questions because the child can't fend for themselves as well as an adult might you know, be expected to. And so that might lead to some of that delay. But I also think that it might go back to this knowledge gap uh, and, and, and sort of health literacy of, we just look at these symptoms as so vague that we might try to live around them and instead don't seek care. So I think all of these things will play into uh, eosinophilic esophagitis diagnosis and treatment and slow things down significantly. Yeah, I think your point is really well stated, this idea that you have to be educated to then be able to advocate for yourself. And obviously, as an adult with a child, you're much more concerned when you don't see improvements versus when it may be yourself and the doctor saying, well, it could be this, and we're going to try that. So clearly, there are some differences in how that gets impacts the time to diagnose, et cetera. One final question. As you look to the future, what are you most excited about relative to how payers can help patients with EOE? Yeah, for me, I really think it's just the fact that we're talking about it. We're really starting to appreciate this disorder more as a society. Uh, the, the prevalence, the incidence is growing. And so I think it's good that we're having these conversations. And um, But I, I, I'm very excited that we have one treatment option available, uh, FDA approved, I should say. But we also have numerous in the pipeline that are going to be targeting different pathways. And there are advocacy organizations that I've learned about, like the American Partnership for Eosinophilic Disorders or APFED. They're doing some amazing work in this space. And the medical community is uh, finally coming to appreciate that this is not necessarily just impacting the patient in the short term. This is, this is more of a, a lifetime impact that early malnutrition can have on these patients. So I just really hope that, you know, payers are going to start appreciating this uh, more as more of these therapies get approved because um, admittedly right now it's a small part of the budget and it kind of fills into this, this broader dupilumab uh, spend. And, and we're not looking at EOE very closely as, as a particular disease, but I think that's going to change and I'm excited for that because I think this is a disorder that really deserves our attention. Yes. And I'd like to now open the discussion for our audience, from our audience for some questions. Uh, the first one we got is a, actually a comment, uh, Steve, and I'd love to read this and, get, and then get your thoughts on it. 
The comment was, this is a vague diagnosis. Nobody really knows. Even after esophagoscopy, GI people aren't sure. Biopsy results are vague, ambiguous. Eliminating all foods one by one is not really feasible. We're looking at an elephant by five blind people. Prescription of steroids is very trial as nothing is known as a cause. Steve, I really agree with you. It's pretty clear now that the EOE diagnosis of quagmire, to say the least, carefully eliminating offending food is probably the best we have. Your thoughts, Steve? Yeah, this is a really good point. Um, I, I think one of the struggles that we have, and I spoke to this a little bit earlier, is just the idea that, you know, we're, we really struggle um, for patients to get to that diagnosis. That's really the first step, right? But it, it's a, a very challenging first step. They need to identify that something's wrong, but then on top of that, really have to, you know, find the right provider uh, who is going to be able to diagnose this. And and so I think this this comment speaks to the idea that even the right provider, we might think of a gastroenterologist, sometimes patients might need to see multiple gastroenterologists and, and maybe one who specializes in disorders uh, like this. And so I, I think this is a really good point because, you know, oftentimes maybe a, a primary care provider won't necessarily have uh, the ultimate diagnosis, but they'll say, this looks like EOE, let's try it. Uh, let's try out one of these um, topical corticosteroids and and see if you respond. And instead, we don't have that final answer just yet, but we do have more of a, a initial response and something that could be promising and helpful. But yeah, again, the, the patient really wants to get that answer. And and so, yeah, the great comment. I completely agree. It's, it's really challenging to identify this uh, diagnosis properly. And even with all of the testing and everything that these patients go through, it's, it's really finding a needle in a haystack to identify this properly. Great. Thanks. And another one is, I have a few patients with EOE who have had esophageal dilations. One patient who has had several over the past 20 years. After her last dilation, her MD said the next time surgery is her only option as another esophageal dilation is out of the question. Neither one of these patients are using any pharmacological treatment for their condition. First off is what the MD told her a fact. And why wouldn't her MD recommend pharmacological treatment? Yes. Also a great question. Um, unfortunately, I can't uh, provide any sort of medical advice. Um, and uh, without knowing the patient's specific situation, it's a little bit hard to pinpoint exactly whether or not, you know, pharmacologic therapy is an option. You have to consider in terms of the pharmacologic options that drugs come with their own contraindications, own reasons not to use them, maybe drug interactions or something would prevent this patient from potentially using some of the pharmacologic options. It might also be a cost consideration. Maybe this person has medical insurance, but not pharmacy insurance, and, and maybe doesn't have the means to pay for that uh, out of their own pocket. So there's all sorts of things that could be going on here. Uh, but what I will say is, you know, we, we do have actually with Impact uh, Education, a few other programs coming up later this year, where we're actually going to have a specialist on the line who's going to be providing additional insight beyond what we talked about today. And uh, those sorts of questions, you know, obviously he'll be able to provide a lot more insight on, you know, some of those treatment decision, uh, you know, algorithms that they use when they're, they're speaking to patients and, uh, again, speak to more of the patient level interaction. Again, my experience is, is managing the pharmacy benefit. So, um, you know, speaking to individual patient circumstances, I uh, can't un unfortunately provide too much detail on that. But thank you for that question. So obviously stay tuned for the next one.
So the next question, in order to have dupilumab approved by a patient's insurance, is it required that they have failed other options? This is a really good question. And the answer is that it depends on the patient's insurance and what that insurer is requiring. So even within the same um, health plan, for instance, that health plan might offer insurance to different payers who would be large employer groups, for instance. The employer group might opt to not incorporate a prior authorization on therapies. It's unlikely, but there are some groups that just want to allow their employees or their you know, union members or whoever to just have access to therapy without necessarily um, uh, the barriers that are normally put in place by health plans. If the health plan does put a prior authorization in place and the uh, the payer supports that and that's the strategy that they move forward with with their benefit design, then the specific criteria are actually going to vary from one plan to the next. And so if you are looking at you know one insurer, they may require a prior authorization on dupilumab and require one step through either the PPIs or the topical corticosteroids. Uh, another insurer may require two steps, one through the PPI and through the topical corticosteroids. And then a third insurer might not require a step at all. It all depends on the pharmacists and medical directors who make up the uh, P&T committees, the pharmacy and therapeutics committees, who ultimately make those decisions and their interpretation of the clinical literature, as well as the benefit uh, of the medication, the value statement of that medication compared to the alternatives. And so that's why we tend to see some differences from one insurer, one payer to the next. Makes sense. And along those coverage lines, dupilumab has a few other indications. How does that impact coverage of dupilumab for EOE? Yeah, that's that's a, another great question. Uh, so uh, dupilumab does have other indications, uh, atopic dermatitis, asthma, uh, chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis. So various different indications that this product has. Um, also very recently approved for paragonodularis. And so the idea that this drug has these other indications, I would say today is not overly important when it comes to um, you know, uh, uh, coverage from the payer perspective. However, from the provider perspective, I understand that if a patient presents with another one of these conditions, because these are all eosinophilic driven conditions, so you know, you can um, or allergic conditions, you can call them. It's, it's very possible that, you know, the patient has multiple of these conditions. And so if the patient has both eosinophilic esophagitis as well as eosinophilic asthma, then, you know, it's uh, interesting to think two birds with one stone, right? What's also interesting is the future implications of this. So when we get new medications potentially to uh, treat specifically eosinophilic esophagitis and they do not treat these other conditions, the other indications that dupilumab has will likely lead to certain patient selection from the provider side, but it also might lead to preferred formulary status, depending again on those pharmacy and therapeutic committee uh, recommendations in terms of, do we want to cover the drug that has more indications? Do we want to cover the new drug that may work you know, similarly, uh, it may be more cost-effective, maybe less cost-effective. All of those decisions will, you know, become clear over time as we, um, you know, get those new medications on the market. But I think it's important to recognize that the new indications, or I'm sorry, the new products that don't necessarily share all of those indications will 
potentially um, have an uphill battle to gain market share compared to dupilumab, which does have those other indications. Great. And sorry we couldn't get all to all the questions. I'd now like to conclude the podcast and thank Dr. Kaluzi for the insightful conversation. And once again, I would like to thank Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Inc. and Sanofi for their support of this educational activity. To claim credit for this activity, please click on the complete evaluation link within the activity. Once the evaluation is completed, be sure to click claim credit to receive your certificate or for pharmacists, submit to CPE monitor. You will also receive a link to complete the evaluation via email if you have technical issues or need to complete it later. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day.